In his description of the exterior of the temple, the first century Jewish historian Josephus remarks that it lacked nothing that could astound either one's soul or one's eyes. Being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, he adds, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 386, The Lost Epigraph of the Colosseum. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In front of the ruins of the Colosseum in Rome, one can find a large block of stone, which, as late as 1874, was still perched over an entrance to the Colosseum. Because the stone now is on the ground, the underside of it is not visible, but its face features carved leaves and animals. It is described by the great classics and Josephus scholar Louis Feldman in a biblical archaeological review article to which I'm greatly indebted. Feldman notes that the stone, quote, must have originally served as an architrave that covered a passageway. The inscription could be seen as one approached, and the decoration could be seen as one passed beneath, end quote. On this block of stone is an inscription which makes no mention of the emperors that built it, Vespasian and Titus. That is because the inscription was composed centuries after their deaths referring to the repairing of the building in 443, during the reigns of Theodosius II and Valentinian II. The inscription, as it stands today, reads, With our two lords, Theodosius and Placidus Valentianus Augusti being well, Rufus Caxina, Felix Lampadius, a most distinguished and illustrious prefect of the city, restored anew at this own expense the arena of the amphitheater together with the podium and platform and rear doors, but also the tiers repaired for viewing, end quote. Scholars, however, noted something else about this block of stone. Pockmarks, tiny holes all over the inscription plaque. The reason for this is that long before the present inscription was made, a different message marked it. Only, instead of actually being inscribed into the stone, that message was put up in a style common for ancient epigraphs. It was composed of metal letters nailed by pegs into the stone. Those original metal letters eventually fell off, and the Colosseum's original epigraph was long lost to history. Or so it would seem. But as Feldman describes, there may be a way of discerning the letters that were once there, which will allow us in turn to gain greater appreciation of the wonders of Jewish history. We discussed yesterday how through the careful labor of the Levites, the Ark of the Covenant was finally brought up to Jerusalem. Chronicles, paralleling the same story in the book of Samuel, now moves to describing the next step of David's dream, which is crowning his city with a home for the Ark, an edifice that will serve as a permanent dwelling place for the divine. Chapter 17. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go, and tell David my servant, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, Have I spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have ye not built me a house of cedars? Now therefore thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep herds, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldst be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more, as at the beginning, and since the time that I command the judges to be over my people Israel. Moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies, 
Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. David, in other words, will not build a temple, but Solomon will. It is obvious that Nathan the prophet instinctively assumed that the plan to create the temple was a good one, only to be informed by the Almighty that David will not be allowed to achieve his aim, and that only through Solomon will the temple emerge into reality. Now, ladies and gentlemen, many, many months ago, when we were studying the version of this story in the book of Samuel, we asked then, why does God refuse David's request? It cannot be that the notion of building what will be called the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, is itself problematic. For if so, why would God have promised that Solomon would build it? Moreover, it is clear from Nathan's instinctively positive response that David's dream is an admirable one. Why then is David refused? And then, in that episode, I said to you that in seeking answers to this question, we turn to another biblical book, Chronicles. And I added, which we will get to only in another 180 or so episodes. At the time, ladies and gentlemen, I confess, that seemed a long way away. But here we are now in Chronicles. And a bit later in the book of Chronicles, in chapter 29, we are told how before his death, David gives the blueprints of the temple to Solomon, charging his son to bring the dream of a temple to fruition. And then David says as follows. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. David then is not allowed to build the temple because he is a man of war. And the point, as we explained earlier, is that unlike Rome, the Israelites never glorified war as an end in itself. We do, of course, celebrate the valor exhibited by David in war when he defended Israel. But as we have seen throughout, David is always careful lest his achievements lead to idolization by Israel of himself. Had David concluded his career by building a temple, it would, we suggested, have inevitably been seen as a monument to his might and the Israelites might have been tempted to see David's lifetime endeavors in war as an ideal, something to glorify and celebrate. David's dream, in other words, was denied out of tragic necessity, lest Judea become Rome. And here is what is interesting. As Louis Feldman further reports in his article, a hundred years after the pockmarks were first discovered on the Colosseum block, they were analyzed by the German academic Giza Alfoldi. Alfoldi is an historian who has created a narrow niche for himself, an interesting and extraordinary academic expertise. He is an expert in what Feldman calls ghost epigraphy, the deciphering of absent epigraphs based only on the precise spacing of the holes that remain, allowing us to figure out what letters were nailed originally into the stone. Alfoldi's findings were first published in German and then popularized by Feldman. Though interpreting an epigraph that no longer exists might appear impossible, Feldman notes that the task is made much easier by the fact that, quote, Roman building inscriptions are extremely formulaic, adding that they contain the name of the ruler who constructed the building, followed by the name of the kind of building and the source of financing, end quote. It's with this in mind that Alfoldi reconstructed the original epigraph. And in his view, the original declaration read, Imperator Titus Caesar Vespasianus Augustus, Amphithetrum Noam, Ex Menubis Fieri Usit. The first lines are unremarkable. 
The first reads, the imperial Caesar Vespasian Augustus, with a T inserted, which Alfoldi notes was meant to incorporate the initial of Titus, Vespasian's son. The second line describes the purpose of this edifice. It is meant to be an amphitheatrum noam, a new amphitheater. The third line, on the other hand, reveals something very interesting. The amphitheater, we are told, was built, fieri eusit, ex minubis, from the booty, meaning to loot taken from a war. What war might this have been? Feldman notes that while Vespasian had at the outset of his career commanded a legion in Germany as well as in Britain, quote, there is no indication that there was much valuable booty to be acquired in either of these places, end quote. This would leave the conquest for which Vespasian and Titus were most known, Judea, in which a great deal of wealth was actually acquired. Feldman writes, quote, By contrast, we know that the Romans acquired tremendous treasures in their conquest of Judea, especially in Jerusalem, and above all from the temple which Herod had renovated at extraordinary expense. End quote. And Feldman further writes that, quote, The Talmud states that he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never in his life seen a beautiful building. In his description of the exterior of the temple, the first century Jewish historian Josephus remarks that it lacked nothing that could astound either one's soul or one's eyes. Being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, he adds, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays, end quote. The Colosseum then was built as a glorification of power and destruction of war in general and of war against the Jews in particular. It is striking that the story of the building whose treasure and treasury funded the Colosseum's construction, the Temple of Jerusalem, teaches us the exact opposite lesson, that war and violence, though necessary at times, are not ends in themselves and should not be subjects of civilizational glory. At the time the Colosseum was built, we can imagine the triumph in Titus's mind. But today, Jews have returned to Jerusalem. The dream of the Temple still lives. And the Colosseum? Well, we know what it looks like today. The English monk, known as the Venerable Bede, famously said that while the Colosseum stands, Rome shall stand. When the Colosseum falls, Rome shall fall. The Colosseum is in ruins. Rome did indeed fall, but David's dream lives on, and Am Yisrael does as well. This is Mayor Salavechik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off. <laughs>